Hello and welcome to Geek Warning. I'm Dave Rome, and with the Tour Down Under and the Start of the World Tour in full swing, we've given James a week off. I was on the ground to see all the new bikes and tech up close, and Ronan, well, you're still there. But you're not. No, no. I, I had to come home in a bit of a hurry. Yeah, my, my partner uh, thought she had locked herself out. Oh, yes. you're going to actually give all the details here. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. uh, thought she'd locked herself out and uh, decided to scale a security wall, which she uh, didn't stay on top of. I am now the nurse. Uh, but yes, Ronan, you're still there. So I, I, I mean, I, I think you're going to have to give a little bit extra details in that she's like falling a wall could be serious or awfully, awfully, awfully serious. And this was somewhere serious. in the middle. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the text message I got was suggestive of that she was in a wheelchair with both legs severely broken. Uh, Non-life-threatening is probably hope. Non-life-threatening, yeah, accident. But uh, thankfully, it's uh, it's about half as bad as that. So the one leg is definitely severely broken. There might be a, a small fracture in the other foot, but uh, needless to say, I, I was needed back home. So, But I had a, a camera full of photos, so I've still got lots of work mm-hmm. to do. You were, you were here, and it's better to have roamed and lost and not to have roamed at all at the third down under so um, i see what you did there it, it was it was it was, uh, it was great while you're here uh, and you've gone away with plenty of great shots yes. and all to, to 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 keep the content flowing or the tech content flowing from third down under absolutely and we got a, a couple of solid days to hang out together so it wasn't mm. all all lost so well uh in this week's episode you can expect to hear all about a number of new bikes components and accessories that have surfaced over the past week on our minds is why many teams seem to be racing on old bikes, and I might even twist Ronan's arm to discuss things wholly unrelated to race tech. Mm. We'll see. Uh, as always, Geek Warning is brought to you by Escape Collective. Escape Collective, our employer, is wholly funded through the support of its members and subscribers. If you're already a member, then thank you. This podcast exists because of you. And if you're not already a member, then please consider joining our mission in providing truly independent cycling media that doesn't fill your screens with pop-ups and other eyesores. All right, Ronan, should we get on with this? I, I thought you were going to say, you said if you're a member, this podcast exists because of you. I thought you were going to say, if you're not a member, this podcast may disappear because of you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is <laughs> that, factual. That is the reality. So <laughs> yeah. uh, members keep this thing alive. Yes. Yep. All right, Ronan. Well, let's talk about all things Tudan Under Tech. You've been at the the race start for the men's. I was at the race start for the women's. Uh, but yeah, what have you seen that is uh, standing out as new, new? Uh, well, I headed out to the first stage of the men's race yesterday. We'll maybe touch on that first because it's most recent. Um, yep. And wasn't really expecting much. Was very much going out there thinking, I'm just going out here because it may miss something if I don't. And turned out there was actually quite a lot of new new tech on show. Uh, most prominent of which, most obvious of which, most unmissable of which was the new Park Road Aero Helmet, which could easily be mistaken for a new Park Time Trial Helmet that we've seen last year. But this thing is definitely not a Time Trial Helmet. This is, well, it's not that Time Trial Helmet. It's maybe a Time Trial Helmet, but it's not that Time Trial Helmet. Uh, I mean, fill us in here. What is, is there rulings that stop people on the road using a Time Trial Helmet? Does it have to be a different product? Uh, there. So my understanding is there are some ruling uh, around the depth of the visor and gotcha. the potentially depth of the sort of side panel on the on the ears. Uh, I've been meaning to check that out. Something tells me there is some rule on that. Uh, and a, you remember the original Giro helmet that had the built-in visor? I'm pretty yep. sure that was outlawed at some point. So that, gotcha. that I think that's what's put in my mind. So to the be, needs to be, to be entirely removable and all that. Yeah, well, the visor was removable in that helmet, I think, was it? Yeah, um, yeah. It had but there's no magnetic points on on the on the on the rim. So okay, but there's no ruling that uh that that dictates riders must wear a helmet that doesn't look ridiculous. Not in those words, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I mean, what are the what are the some of the key details of this helmet? Uh, is it does it look like it breathes? Like it breathes, as in uh, ventilated. Yeah, like, yeah. is it something you'd want to wear in a Australia's hot summer? I was very surprised to see it used yesterday. Uh, Harris, yeah. Harris Weenie, um, Australian rider, obviously, maybe more adapted to the heat than the many of the European riders landing down here. But still, it was exceptionally hot yesterday. It's actually quite a bit cooler today. Uh, it was down as low as 12 degrees in our ride this morning, and we actually got a drizzle of rain. So wow. I guess that's what happens when you bring an Irish guy to, to tour down under. <laughs> um, 
uh, it was very hot yesterday. Harry Sweeney was the only writer wearing the new helmet, as far as I've seen. But I like obviously, Park haven't said anything on this new helmet. They have confirmed to me it is a new helmet, which obviously it is. Uh, that it's still under embargo, and that we'll get more details soon. But what okay. I expect that we're going to hear is some sort of yeah, some sort of language around similar to that used for the new time trial ProSen helmet that they released last year, and that was surrounding those three large vents at the front and that they reduce the high pressure zone in front of the helmet and helps reduce aerodynamic drag coupled with that by forcing flow through those vents and into channels inside the helmet that actually you get a bit of a venturi effect where they the sort of rushing the air through a, a, a constricted space actually creates like a low pressure zone behind it and also helps mm-hmm. to uh wisp like excess heat from inside the helmet out, uh, and then gotcha. you can see at the back the the ex- sort of exhaust ports, for lack of a better term, on, on the rear of the helmet. It's not as large as a ProSyn helmet, it's just literally one big vent from, you know, running the entire width of the helmet. With the new Road helmet yesterday, it split it up into, if I remember correctly, three different vents that, that sort of exhaust at the, at the rear, um, so it'll be the same idea something to do with channeling the airflow, accelerating airflow through that zone, creating low pressure zone behind the rider, improving aerodynamics on the back, this, that, and the other. So um, gotcha. time will tell. Yeah. Yep. And and looking as close to a sci-fi fictional <laughs> character as possible. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, like, I, I put a story on the Escape Collective Instagram account yesterday, uh, something to the effect of, Road helmets are owning twenty twenty four or something. <laughs> road aero helmets will rule twenty twenty four. Something to that extent because yeah, it's only what a, a week after we seen casks crazy yep. new helmet. Um, yeah, the ear pincher. The ear pincher, which I believe haven't got up close to it yesterday, is actually called the Nirvana. Technically speaking, uh, uh, at least that's, that's casks name for it. I, I had suggested in last week's episode that it, it Dumbo would be a great name for it. <laughs> I'd heard that. But, yeah, I'd, uh, I'd heard that. Anyway. Um, but uh, haven't haven't got up close to that helmet. If if we move along, because that was the other helmet I seen yesterday. Obviously, mm. already memed the 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 planet over. So uh, it's not exactly new news to anybody. But what was interesting is that Cask have actually you know get, getting up close to the helmet yesterday. I was able to get a look inside it, and mm. uh, what I spotted then was you spotted nits. I. Well, maybe I thought it was 3D printing, um, but maybe it was just nuts eating away at the uh, the internal mm. lining. I don't know. Okay, no, so 3D I, printed padding. Yeah, so it's the it's Casks multipod internal padding gotcha. that they first brought out with the Elemento last year, uh, mm. and it's got that sort of if you imagine picture a 3D printed saddle, it kind of honeycomb effect. Yep. The internal padding has the, has the same sort of visual effect to it uh, and it lines the inside of the helmet obviously cask claims that it sort of helps with rotational impacts it's it's like yeah it's their rotational impact um device but on top of that because it's like a honeycomb structure and because cask don't have to like fill the inside of the helmet with it they've got uh, a channel of air running through the the multipod padding because it's honeycomb and also either side of it um, very, very similar to what we've seen in the Elemento helmet that was released last year. The exact same actual merino wool uh, eyebrow pad on the front of the helmet also. Um, and so like when you look at the the new Nirvana helmet from looking on the inside of it, it actually just looks like the exact same helmet as the uh, as the Elemento. And that's something okay. I was sort of, uh, that's something I asked Cask at the time when they released the Elemento. I was like that and the, the Fluid 12 Techno Polymer um Material that they they'd used on on the on that helmet also as one. I was asking, you know, will we see this in more helmets going forward? And you know, obviously, the answer is going to be maybe. And now we know the gotcha. very next helmet released has, has yeah, included okay. similar technology. I'm not not sure if it includes the Fluid Twelve, but probably not because it's very visible on the Elemental and it's not visible at all in the Nirvana. But um, certainly inside the helmet, it's very similar. All right. Did you catch a third new helmet uh, from Van Riesel? Uh, not company? yeah, not so new in that it's okay. been about since uh, June, July time last year. But certainly, the okay. first time we've seen it in the world tour. 
Um, but it was in your new gallery on escapecollective.com? Yeah, I mean, not everything in that gallery was brand new tech, but uh, sure. most mostly new or, or interesting. Um, but the Van Riesel is, I'm still going to call it new. It's the first time I had seen one in person. Yep. The first time a lot of people will have been been aware of its existence. Sure. I had made a slight mistake in the article that I said it was priced at £69.99, pence, which the Aero Helmet itself is, which is incredible value when you think about it. That's... I don't know how the pricing, you know, how, what way Decathlon would price it in Australia, but just having been here for a week, I know that's just under 140 Aussie dollars. Uh, if yeah. you just take the exchange rate. Yeah. Um, Which is uh what a, a quarter of what the other helmets we're talking about will will probably yes. be. Yes. So, and yeah. The slight mistake I made wasn't on that pricing. That pricing is accurate for the Van Riesel FCR Aero Road helmet. Uh the mistake I had made is that the rider I had pictured is wearing a MIPS-equipped version of that helmet mm-hmm. that only the AG2R squad seem to have access to at the moment because it's gotcha. not, not available through Decathlon gotcha. at the moment. Presumably it will, but also presumably it'll cost a bit more when it does come. Sure. Okay. Uh, moving to the feet of riders, uh, mm. you spotted some new things there. Uh, track shoes, what's what's going on here? Very interesting track shoes. Um, two two different pairs of new shoes from, from Trek. Um, one is what looks to me like a extremely lightweight net construction. I don't like... Kind of like a weird X webbing across it. Yeah, I, I was, was going to say I don't shoe, like but sort of categorizing shoes into yeah. rider types like sprinter or climbers. The S-Works RS was like a sprinter shoe, and of course we see Julian Alaphilippe wearing them. So, you know, th- these shoes will work across categories. But if we just mm. indulge in that for one second, these shoes, because of the nut construction and that, and uh, they sort of strike me as they may well be like a lightweight sort of climber-specific shoe if you if you want to go there. Um, yeah. No doubt they it look, will work for any type of rider, but... They look comfy. They have like these very obvious stretchable panels where, where people would normally have shoe discomfort, you know, around the ball of the foot. People have odd shapes there. This, these look quite stretchy, which is, again, it's a feature we've seen Specialized doing some shoes. We've seen it from, I believe, Gano, Northwave, definitely. I've, t- I've, I've seen it from. So, yeah, it's, it's not a new concept, but I, I quite like what I'm seeing from Trek here. Do you think those, like the, so the closure straps or the retention straps, where the bow dials are mounted, do you think they are stretchable? I, I had kind of looked at them and presumed that there wouldn't be much stretch in them. It's the sort of the, no, it's more it's more in between those construction. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it's more the yeah you've got like this this webbed boa uh, construction that gives the the stiffness to the shoe and, and yes. prevents your foot from moving. And then uh, between that is kind of like a sock like material. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the the Teva sandal of cycling shoes. Yeah, uh, I think we're on the same page there, yeah. Also new, uh, what mm-hmm. they're clipping Very, into. Uh, well, sorry, just to finish on those shoes. Yeah. Uh, the the sort of heel cup is, you know, another area that's very, very open-looking heel cup and, and sort right. of... Uh, what, what would, how would you refer to the section that sort of hugs the Achilles on, on many of the modern shoes where it, like, properly, like, almost like sucking your heel into the... Into yeah, the yeah. A very shapely heel cup, yeah. Yeah, whereas this, it's sort of almost lips away from the Achilles. Um, gotcha. So interesting. But then Trek actually had a second pair of uh, new shoes on show. Uh, these look very much like the Bontrager Triple X shoes that exist at the moment, uh, but more of an all-rounder, but dare I say a bit more durable looking. Um, okay. But, um, but I've, I've obviously got nothing to base the durability <laughs> of the neck construction shoes on other than they look very soft. And they also look, pretty difficult to keep clean like presumably those shoes sure. are not all that old but they were already pretty pretty yeah. uh, you'll dirty need to looking. take the Tajay path and and just uh dip your white shoes in a bucket of soapy water and then you know the the, the other interesting thing about the 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 second pair of new shoes from trek is just that the sort of microfiber uppers seem similar to that using the current triple x but you've got the new boa li2 dials uh, and a much more perforated looking sort of presumably more breathable um, upper, upper there. Um, and mm. I, I guess I guess the, the other interesting thing about both shoes is that it's not the Bontrager logo on them, but the Trek name. Uh, yeah. And sort of in keeping with Trek's move to put the Trek name on their new helmets that they released last year. And Yeah, move. yeah. there's there's a lot of products in the Trek lineup that have been shifting from 
Bontrager branding over to Trek branding, and I guess uh, I guess it's simply that they feel the Trek name is is the stronger name these days, uh, and you know it's directly in line with what uh, their closest competitor does. So I think we'll see more of that trend over the next year or two. Clipping into those pedals, uh, actually maybe not because Trek uses time, but look, look seem to have some new keys. What's going on here? Not much we can say on these really other than they oh. just look like a new set of look keels look they look wider um, yeah they do look much wider um, yeah, which i think would be a good thing yeah um yeah. they've also seemed to have done away with the little i don't know was it like an access port or something for bearing replacement bearing service on the on the mm-hmm. out, outside of the older pedal or the existing pedals oh, okay uh, these these new look pedals just look much smoother and and design on on the underside the okay. platform where you like clip into couldn't see all that much different other than you know perhaps a slight change to the the sort of face plate protector plate that that is on the platform there gotcha um, but again you, obviously it's wider which is yeah i, I you, presume going to be the, the major thing about this did you catch a glimpse at anyone's shoes does the cleat look different i didn't sorry okay. um didn't see anybody there there were a mix of new and old lucio pedals in in the yep. in the confidence team gotcha. um so i you know i could have seen a writer but uh, wouldn't gotcha. have known for sure which pedals they were using. Well, cool. like, uh, could have checked out which rider it was and checked which bike they had, but didn't go to that length. So yeah, a few new things mm. to expect over Spe- the next. Uh, speaking of time weeks pedals and, and look, yeah, look pedals. Uh, Movie Star have actually moved to time pedals. Uh, no uh. surprise really, given that they're you know SRAM and Zip equipped team. Uh, but for the past few years, they were riding Lukio pedals with with that SRAM group set and Zip wheels. But this year, they moved to the time pedals which are obviously also under the the SRAM umbrella yeah it's interesting to see how much SRAM is investing in the the time brand at the moment we're definitely seeing a resurgence of of time pedals in the in the the pro peloton at the moment and then mm. you know track as well as on them they've even got team issue pedals which are matched to the bike with little trek logo inside of them which is quite neat uh and then yeah the other one is is wahoo with Speedplay is also making some moves mm. so yeah, it's I think no longer just Shimano, unbranded Shimano pedals. Anybody relatively new to the sport, I mean, even within the last decade, might not know that actually Time was one of the biggest players in the pedal space, you know, going back about 15 years ago, maybe 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah, uh, that was probably, a while ago. Probably shared with Luke. Luke maybe just edged them out, but certainly in the performance space, Time had a lot of fans that... Mm-hmm. Their, I can't remember the, the model names now. Espresso was one, but that might have yeah. came as they were on the decline. Uh, there was a there was a time pedal before that that if you were a competitive rider, you more than likely used those time pedals and time yeah, shoes. It's an acronym, but yeah. Mm. Uh, and so it probably makes a lot of sense that Tram would want to, or not that it makes a lot of sense that Tram would want to, but the time brand is probably easier rec- resurrected than than many others. It's a good system. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of these riders are coming off of either Look or Shimano, but it, it is a good system that's uh, likely not to, not to meet too much uh, too much complaint. So, hmm. I think a lot we'll be looking forward to if SRAM update those time pedals. At the moment, they're, I've never tried them, so I can't speak to whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, but yeah. they look considerably taller than many other pedals. They're not too tall. The way the cleat system works, it gets you pretty close to the axle. I guess my my point is that then perhaps not as wide as some of the other pedals. So like the, the stability, perhaps. But but yeah, I mean, I I have been using a pair off and on. Um, but yeah, I think you know, SRAM just inherited the the design and hasn't hasn't made any significant changes yet. So I think that'll probably come in a year or two to come. So uh, that'll be interesting to see what they do with that design. Uh. Is whether you say off and on or on and off, kind of like a glass half full, glass half empty sort of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, okay. my, my go-to is the Shimano system. Um, that's how I've got most of my shoes set up. And that's sort of what I, I tend to lean toward. And uh, for me, switching to the time, I found them just uh, the float took a little bit too much getting used to. And given I only had the one pair, I, I wasn't going to be switching them between multiple bikes. So, I just went back to Old Faithful. So that's that's the reasoning. But you know, if if I was given some you know multiple pairs of time pedals, that's what I had enough for every bike. I I, I think I'd probably uh I, I don't even think come it around that. to enjoying them. Just, uh, I think it would just need time pedal specific tool uh, from various different mm. tool manufacturers, and you'd be converted. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> anyway, moving on. 
Let's move on a bit to some other news in the in the tech world. Uh, Envy has been busy. Uh, it looks like they've got a new hub, the Inner Drive Straight Pool Hub, which is currently just for road and gravel wheels. Uh, it's a disc brake specific hub. Some cool features with this. Notably, there's yeah, being straight pool, they've they've built into the the spoke holes some anti twist tech, which I believe might require a, a special spoke, but that is to be confirmed. I might be speculating there. Uh, the main thing with the spokes though is they've they've designed the flanges to be uh, the right height, so you only need one spoke length per wheel, which is is a nice touch. Other brands do that. It's it's always good to require fewer fewer spares. Uh, but yeah, inside the hub is where is where the biggest differences are happening. So they've got a whole new ratchet based drive system, which is significantly oversized if you're comparing it to something like a DT Swiss Star Ratchet. And, and that's allowed them to have some pretty impressive engagement numbers. So uh, they've got 40, 60, 80, or 100 points of engagement options. Uh, the 60 tooth is, is what comes as stock. And I guess the, the trade-off is the more engagement points you add, the more uh, potential friction you get while coasting. Yeah, so I mean, they're, they're also lighter. So Envy uh, were previously using a hub that was designed in collaboration with Mavic, the ID360. These days, the two companies are very, very much not the same company. They're very much split, have nothing to do with each other anymore. So, yeah, Envy's, Envy's taken its own path. And, uh, yeah, the, it's a 90-gram weight saving over the previous uh, Envy-branded hub. So, um, I think they look good. I think long-term, it'll be interesting to see how, how the durability plays out of the bearings and all that. But no doubt the company's done its research on it because they're going to be using these hubs in a lot of wheels. Not just new hubs, though. There's a new cockpit as well, the AR cockpit. Is it new? It's very similar to something we've been seeing from uh, UAE being raced on, but this is uh, slightly different to that. Well, I was thinking it's actually very similar to the Costa Mall Road. Ah, yes, yes, mm. yes. Uh, anyway, we should probably explain what this is. Um, mm. It's a new SESAR one-piece handlebar from Envy um, with, well, it's an integrated handlebar and stem with 20 bar width and stem length combination options available. Um, yeah. And and the big thing being that they're sort of aero profiling all to them, ergonomic shape, and with what Envy called compound flared drops, which mm. means flared drops. They haven't actually told us what kind of angle that flare is. At no. Like- so I think it's tricky because the compound flare, I think, isn't a, isn't a straight flare. I think it kind of flares... Yeah progressively as it as it reaches the drop so it kind of keeps kicking out more and more just to really mess with that new uci flare drop tool (laughs) yeah i think it's it's a tough one to probably give a number to but yeah the the bar widths from i assume measured from center to center of the hoods are you know available between 38 and 46 centimeter maybe they're measured from the drops and that would make a very narrow bar at the hoods I mean that would be music to a lot of people's ears if that was if that mm. was true if it's measured at the at the at the drops. Um, I think you know the the big thing about that compound flare is that it actually with all the flare being below the lever clamp area, uh, yep. you can maintain a straight lever. Uh, at least looking at this, I'm I'm guessing you can maintain a straight lever setup if that's what you like. If that's what I like, and so then you know as you said, it's not a. It's not a simple flare from the from the tops down. It's 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 very much from the lever down actually. And and like the thirty six, while I'm thinking it's thirty eight. Sorry, while I'm thinking that thirty eight is probably at the hoods. Yeah, me um, too. If if it is at the drops, it would actually make quite a bit of sense because the UCI's minimum handlebar width now is thirty six. 35, 36 centimeters around that. I can't remember gotcha. exactly which, but, um, and so if you have a flared drop, obviously you can have your, your hoods much narrower than that. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to the day, obviously you've got the whole lever angle thing and the UCI have confirmed that if your drops have a flare, then you're, yep. you're going to have more re- relative to the center line of the bike. Let's say you're going to, ha- you, you're going to be permitted more lever and word angle uh, than yep. someone who has straight drops because yep. your lever could be within 10 degrees of the flare um mm-hmm. which is a permiss- permitted limit but obviously with the flare drop that's going to make it 
much more inward angle than yeah one one example i was speaking with one of the mechanics from the uh jaco lula team and they a lot of them are on a, a fled handlebar which comes with the propel uh and they they were were shocked by how within the the limits they were when the uci came by with its tool um they thought they'd be moving levers and the uci tool was nowhere near it and it was just a result of the the bar flare really bringing you know pulling that tool more inboard uh so yeah it's yeah, flared bars definitely leave a little bit of leeway. While we're on this topic, because it is yeah. relevant to turn on there and all, um, sure. as we've seen the first checks, so to speak, they, they, they checked quite a few bikes yesterday morning again, uh, so it seems like it'll just be a common occurrence. One thing I have heard, though, and the reason the exact jig that they're using is still a prototype, it's a 3D printed prototype, is that they're actually rolling up quite a, against quite a bit of issues with sprint shifters and satellite shifters yep. on the drops and the sort of hydraulic hose mounting point on 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 the yeah where the, the hose nut goes yeah yeah exactly and that's if that's sort of in the wrong place relative to the drop and where the jig mounts on the drop it can mm-hmm. sort of it can it can render the jig useless so they're i think yep. they're trying to finalize the design to to have a have a system that regardless of whether you've got a sprint shifter or not it's it's gonna it's gonna be able to take a measurement yeah okay they might have to come up with a, a different path of measuring um, mm. so yeah i wonder if like yeah if they can measure from the outside and rather than from the inside yeah out. yeah yeah or from the the top of the handlebar mm. out yeah anyway back to the mv handlebar uh it is a pretty high-end item so they're making it in-house in utah uh it includes a k-edge combo computer and accessory mount which is quite a nice touch uh, projected weights 330 to 360 grams so that gives you the handlebar and the stem uh, and yeah it's it's made to work with uh, MV's own system integration so like you know what you see on the melee and the mog and and their other bikes so no doubt other brands will adapt this handlebar to work with their headset systems uh but yeah i think it it looks pretty good and and you'd hope so for 1200 us it's not the cheapest one piece handlebar you'll find claimed with 330 to 360 grams depending on exact size combination you've gone with yeah so let's move on ronan do you know anything about the new decathlon trainers do i know anything about the new decathlon trainers i know they are van risel trainers okay uh, decathlon's sort of cycling brand uh they've got a their interactive smart trainer direct drive you know everything you'd expect from from a modern trainer yeah uh the most the most interesting point about them is that the interactive turbo trainer d100 is priced at 240 pounds sterling which uh, when you compare that with even something like the zwift hub one which is sort of um you know very well priced also uh, i think it's just above half the price of the zwift hub of one if yeah. i'm getting my pricing right uh, and then the sort of higher spec one which you know, I haven't really delved into the specs of these, but this the interactive turbo trainer D five hundred, which may well be more in line with the Zwift Hub one and, and those likes, but sorta of appears to be higher spec. Mm-hmm. That that's retailing at four hundred and fifty pounds sterling. And apologies I don't have other international pricing at the moment. Okay. Um, but it's uh you know, it's it's very elite sweet OT. Yeah, I was going to say you, know you you probably don't need to look up photos of these because if you've, you've seen a Wahoo Kicker Core, then you've seen the cheaper version. Yes. And 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 yeah, the, the more expensive version is a bit more of a box-like uh, Elite-style design, right? Yeah, uh, you know, very, very recognizable designs. Um, but but also, you know, the the Turbo Trainer D500, which is a higher spec of these two that we were, that we were talking about, you know, it, straight away looking at it, it's got a very well positioned handle, which is not evident mm. on on all trainers. And then, I guess the other sort of noticeable thing about both of them is that they you know, neither feature foldable legs or you know the, gotcha. the sort of the design where you can you can kind of fold the, the the trainer away and put it put it out of sight quite easily. These these legs seem fixed, so that's probably one thing to consider. But they are like eight, nine, ten, eleven speed. 12-speed compatible, quick release and through axle compatible, claimed performance measurement and sensors. You're with the D500, which is the the sort of the premium version of the two trainers. You're you're talking like a 1500 watt maximum resistance and some of these gradients up to 12 percent. 
and the measure power accuracy is claimed to be within two percent. So it's not setting any benchmarks there. No, it's not setting. Uh, well, I mean, the, I guess the, the market. I guess the benchmark it's setting there is uh, with the D one hundred, which is you know the cheaper of the two, and yeah. it it allows you up to a maximum of six hundred watts and gradient simulation up to six percent. I mean, so so the bench it's setting a new benchmark for being pricing the lowest. <laughs> <laughs> the lowest power of any smart trainer. Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there, yeah. Obviously, six hundred watt maximum isn't really much to write home about. Uh, yeah. It's definitely a lot lower than most trainers offer. But I know uh, a lot of riders I train with, and my parents, and a lot of other riders around the yeah. world don't do maximum efforts on the yeah, turbo trainer. Yeah, that'll be they, sufficient. Yeah, yeah, they they get on the trainer a few times a week uh, after work. And they, you know, they do a group ride on Zwift or whatever platform they're using, and you know, six hundred watts is more than ample, especially if you're getting, uh, you know, the interact uh, interaction with the simulated gradient on Zwift. Obviously, the six percent there that could be an issue because you know, plenty of those riders will want to go out and maybe ride up to Zwift or something like that. And even with the maximum trainer difficulty setting, uh, you're probably not going to get a the true feel for that climb if you've only got a max six percent gradient. So. I still think that that D100 uh, is very, very interesting at that price and would meet a lot of people's needs. All right. Well, yeah, more proof that Decathlon isn't slowing down in their investments in cycling. and Ramping uh, up, if anything. Yep. So, uh, yeah, more from that brand, I'm no doubt, will come. And, and, yeah, clearly they're investing in forever increasingly more complex tech. Also worthy of of just a quick conversation is uh, there's now two handmade bike shows in Australia. So news overnight is that Made, the show out of the US that uh, had its first year in Portland uh, that James and I were at, they're launching Made Australia. And they've done that in partnership with uh, Andy White of Fixo, which is uh, quite a cool brand in Australia that that runs events and and has clothing and, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so they're happening and then the handmade bicycle show australia that i've been covering for many years now great event that is continuing but they've changed their name to spoken uh and it it seems like there's probably a little bit of a what do i say a little bit of competition here uh so both events in 2024 will run within two weeks of each other within melbourne uh the plan is is for made australia to then move to adelaide for to coincide with the tour down under for 2025 so i oh, think it's, i'll have to come back then you'll have to come back so i think it will be a temporary competitive landscape i think in 2025 we'll see things settle down again but but yeah it is it is odd for such a what i'd say a niche show to to have direct competition like that one thing noticeable to me writing around town here in Adelaide is the sheer number of handmade or custom made bikes is there yeah. is the thought here that rising tide lifts all boats and that actually there is space for two shows as you know as, as a result of that yeah I think long term once both shows figure out where they're positioned in the market and where they want to be based and at what time of year then then great but I think yeah uh made Australia has definitely made uh Sorry, no pun intended, but they've definitely come into the into the market and and selected a date that they knew was going to overlap pretty closely. And I don't believe it was necessarily intended to be as malicious as it looks. It, it was that Fixo already has a pre existing event in Melbourne called Melbourne Roubaix, which happens every year, and it's kind of like a a fun bike scavenger hunt with thousands of people spread out across the city doing really fun things on bikes and yeah the plan was just to do sort of like a soft launch of made australia and and coincide it with that event before it moves to adelaide the following year uh so yeah i think from what i can tell the 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 most important builders the the big names the draw card builders are are likely to appear at both shows uh longer term it'll be it remains to be seen whether the those builders can justify the time away from building bikes in order to attend two shows i think that's that's where things get a little murky but anyway, yeah, I think both shows intend to grow the awareness of these brands and put these brands in front of more and more customers. So in theory, not a bad thing. Ronan, should we talk about what's on our mind? You and I have just both uh, had some nice UV rays out of Adelaide and we've suddenly uh, seen a common theme of fresh teams, yeah, that's the start of the season. You'd normally expect to see fresh bikes, but there's a, a lot of old bikes still being ridden in these auto races. A lot of old bikes, which we had 
well, old old colorways, let's say, that we had sure. that we had spotted. Uh, and then yesterday, walking through the paddock before the start of stage one, a lot of old components and group sets and wheels and stuff that's pretty scuffed up in many cases. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Still, still in use. So yeah, yeah, complete bikes that are carried forward from from last year into this season. And it wouldn't be the first time this has happened to tour down under. It's I wouldn't say it's a common sight. It's certainly more it, common I'd this year it, than other years. But yeah, it, it used to be a thing, and a lot of teams would use the Tour Down Under off, to offload old team bikes that arrive in Australia with the plan to not have to pay the oversized baggage fees to get the bikes back out of Australia. You know, So mm. they'd, they'd basically encourage their riders to, to travel with their training bikes and, and land and get one last race done and then offload them and, and be done with it. That isn't the case here these bikes are going to go back to europe for for more racing is is what i understand and yeah i mean look at trek they're they're on a on red bikes with a sticker covering the segofredo brand which is no longer a sponsor <laughs> dsm are on the same bike although theirs look quite fresh the list goes on so especially in the women's as well like canyon shram as well old paint again they're waiting on their new bikes there's alperson, C- alperson yep they're, they're another one. Uh, yeah, Movistar. there's the Movistar. Yep, there's plenty more. And <laughs> it's interesting to me because I guess the reasons seem to be a little bit muddled. Some, some are waiting to get back on back to Europe and get on the new bikes, while others have sort of hinted that they're, they're just not bothering to repaint the old frames. They're just going to wait it out because there's a new model a few months to come. On the face of it, makes a lot of sense, and arguably is the way it should have been done anyway. If a brand is going to launch a new model bike in a matter of months' time, yeah, why would they go to the expense of manufacturing, giving away, and painting a whole fleet of new bikes that were only going to do a few months' work anyway, when the same bike was available from yeah. the season before and the team already had it? What actually happened, though, was that regardless of when a brand was launching a new bike, in most cases, for as long as I remember, the team mm-hmm. would still get a new version of the existing bike in December or January. The mechanics yeah. would have to go to all the effort of building said new frame. Yeah, uh, they'd have to, you know, bring it the whole way around the world, do turn down under, bring it back again, do the classics, and then maybe for the Giro or the Dauphiné they get a new frame. What's happened this year is they're just running with last year's bikes until they get to the point where that new frame is launched. And we had a couple of different reasons, a couple of different speculations as to why. I'd, I'm thinking it's an indication of sort of the market pressures at the moment and it's yes. a, that that is considering everything i just said that is presumably a, a major cost saving yeah a lot of these teams are, are required to provide product and a cash component and surely their contracts wouldn't let them get out of the cash component but mm. perhaps there's some leeway with what they can do as far as supplying product uh and yeah i think you're you're spot on right and i think it's it's cost pressures, pressures, and yeah, I mean, repainting or or sending out new frames that will only get six months of use uh, is a big cost to everyone involved. And yeah, I guess they're it's also a big waste. The drawstrings. It's quite wasteful, but at the same time, you're also thinking, you know, this is the top tier of our professional sport. Hmm. Uh, so it is surprising to see riders riding around on on bikes that are clearly just you know have stickers covering old sponsors. Yeah, when I say it's wasteful, I, I mean. It's not great, but it's not like those bikes would be built and then would lie forever more gathering dust in a service course. They'll be sold yeah. to you know yeah. the, the the public who can get use out of for for years to come. Uh, and the other thing is, with a new frame coming, more often than not, manufacturers might struggle to offload the existing frame, and and so sometimes it guess it it might maybe make sense to actually give it to the team and 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 use them up that way. Anyway, it was unexpected. Uh, it our galleries uh, are come. You know, we're we're posting galleries every day at the moment from Tour Down Under. Uh, but yeah, expect to see some familiar bikes in amongst those galleries. There's lots of new ones as well, but there are some familiar bikes in the mix. And uh, I'm certainly looking at a lot of photos from last year to try to figure out whether my photos are are of a new bike or not. So, so yeah, what's also on my mind from Tour Down Under is walking the pits and seeing so many mechanics making do with what look like tools they've had to source locally. And and I, I get it. The getting a, a whole team, a world tour team to Australia is hugely expensive. The excess baggage fees are just mind boggling the numbers I've heard. Uh and yeah, so it makes sense that mechanics try to leave tools behind year on year when they know they're coming back, like work stands, 
pumps, air compressors. Uh, but there's also a lot of things they need to bring. And so they try to bring lighter weight kits. And, but it's the start of the season. So they're also having to fit riders to their bikes. An unusual number of steerer tubes are being cut. There are forever adjusting spaces here and there. And yeah, it's, it's kind of amusing walking by and what, seeing a, an Italian bike being, you know, having its steerer tube cut with a Makita angle grinder. Uh, with no, with with no protection being used by the mechanic, uh, but yeah, I mean, Ronan, what did you see here? Like, what's going on here? I, I think I seen cancer, uh, lung cancer specifically. Yes. But yes, um, it, it it never ceases to amaze me how uh, like literally every race I go to, there's a mechanic the day before the race cutting a steerer tube in the back of a truck somewhere. In this case, in the middle of a gazebo, in the middle of a Adelaide city center. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah. I, I just it, <laughs> it it always amazes me. Like, how is this? How is this happening now? When you these bikes were built in the service course months ago, they have elaborate systems for tracking rider positions and getting them pinpoint perfect or as close to pinpoint perfect as you can, unless you're Chris Froome. But yeah, that's it, it, it. Just always interesting, and we've seen the same again here, and obviously much more difficult here, given that they haven't got their. The mechanics are not in the service course with all the tools that would be on hand there, and you know they're also not even in one of the team trucks, the mechanics trucks, yeah. which are obviously kitted out better than most workshops are. Yeah, for me, this is kind of more evidence that the fully integrated cockpits that require you to cut a steerer perfectly in line to match the stem uh, perhaps aren't a perfect race product because pros do swap and change a little bit here and there, and Dialing these things in often means committing to a certain steerer height. Well, what I think you didn't actually see in the in the example you just mentioned was that the mechanic had cut said steerer with um with a hacksaw blade. Um, yeah, didn't have the full hacksaw. You can explain that because you'll be yeah just a it. just a one one sided handle that holds the blade. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a lightweight. They they kind of uh, I'm really struggling to remember the name here, but they're actually designed for putting a blade down into places where you can't get a whole hacksaw. So mm. like down into the middle, center of a pipe or something like that. They're, that's traditionally what they're used for. Didn't strike me as the most, this, the most accurate way of, especially when it's already mounted and the fork is already in the frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the frame is on a fairly wobbly stand mm-hmm. and the, the mechanics having to cut like horizontal yeah. To, uh, so that that well, that's probably that why the angle grinder came out afterwards to clean up the to clean up the mess. I see. This is what I think happened: is that they've then tried to assemble said fork and stem and steer yeah. and all that, and realized that the top cap didn't close, so the angle grinder came out. <laughs> to, to, which, which, to be honest, actually instilled quite a bit of faith in me because I've yeah. become more and more paranoid about fork steers as I've had to test more and more bikes. Literally, keep mm-hmm. me awake at night sometimes. Yep. And to see that actually you never really see box steer failures in, in the world tour and um, that actually they are not sometimes installed with the utmost care, uh, but yet they still seem yeah. to survive. Oh, yeah. This yeah, I think the- that generally speaking, fork steers are fairly overbuilt. But uh, yeah, I think the other takeaway here is that this isn't how teams normally operate. They have to make concessions to their workflow in Australia because they don't have the full tools. They don't even have a bench vice with them. So they don't even have a bench. They've got like a trestle table in these in, in most cases. So there's nothing to attach a bench vice to. So yeah, it's it's just quite funny to watch, you know, the top end of the sport kind of uh, being run at a hardware store level of bike maintenance sometimes. That was on my mind, but also on my mind, uh, should we cover a PSA that's kind of related uh... to that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So something else I saw. Most teams have the race style stands that they're used to using, which hold the bike between the bottom bracket and the the front fork dropouts. Some teams even you know travel with ones that are are simply cool, like uh one of the mechanics from I believe it was the team of Canyon Shram uh had like a a customized little quick release clamp that just clamps onto the the front through axle, which made it super quick to take the bike in and out. Other teams, a few teams like the Australian national team for one, uh, there was a, a women's continental team that were on Aurum bikes was another. They have like your more traditional shop Tyskin. style fo- folding repair stand that, that clamps onto the seat tube, uh, clamps onto the seat post. But uh, to my horror, they weren't using them in that way. They were clamping a variety of very expensive, very delicate, very lightweight top tubes with this clamp. Scary. Yeah. 
So, uh, in the case of the the Australian team, I mean, I'm I, I don't mean to shame, but it's like, yeah, they're working on a variety of te- team bikes that aren't present at the at the Tour de Under. So, for in the case of of the women's race, that's that's a number of World Tour teams that didn't come to the Tour de Under. So, there's there was a rider there from uh, EF Education, and there was a rider there from Cofidis, and a few other very high end, very fresh new team bikes that are potentially going to have some issues with uh, the top tube being clamped down the down the road so uh it was just a reminder to me that even at the top end of the sport you still think see things done wrongly and uh i just want to remind people that unless you're on a a steel or a titanium frame that has a round top tube then please don't clamp it the tubes just aren't made to be clamped so clamp the bike by the seat post and your bike will be happy for you it kind of you know there's obviously a safety element which is the foremost Thing, uh, about this PSA don't clamp your top tubes uh, don't clamp any tubes but there's also like the, the, those teams that have let's say a mix of riders uh, and as such a mix of bikes you quite often find mm. that some of them riders won't actually be professional riders and may well have paid for the bike themselves or may well only have you know the bike on mm. loan from a from a, a friendly local bike shop or a supporting local bike shop or something and you know it's one thing you sort of expect that you know, frames may well get damaged, especially if the rider has a crash, but you don't really want to be, especially if you paid for the thing, hearing that it's been damaged outside of the race. Uh, while, it, while it should have been getting checked over, it was actually broken or cracked. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, perhaps the bikes clamped at this race are fine. Perhaps there's, there's zero issue to them, but it's there's a high chance that... Uh, that that's not the case and it's just not worth the risk. Was there so any chance they... If def- you've got a repair stand... I was going to say, was there any chance that the bikes were simply resting in that position and weren't actually clamped or was the clamp tightened up? Not from what I saw, Ronan. No, no, they were they were very firmly held by those uh, by the top tube. Yeah, that's the PSA. Use your repair stands as recommended. Uh, clamp the seat post, please. I have an addition to that. If you're... Uh, guesting on a composite team, or uh, maybe even if you're just letting any, and, and you know, obviously there are going to be some incredible mechanics working on composite teams, also. Um, so yeah, but you know, mm-hmm. th- this isn't to say that if you're working for a composite team, you're not a good mechanic. I think that's a, a given. Uh, this is just one example you're referring to here. But perhaps if you're letting someone else who you don't know their skill level work on your bike for whatever reason that is, maybe a bit of masking tape on the top tube that says "Don't clamp here." <laughs> Just um, before you you send it off, I, I don't know. I'm I'm thinking the next time someone has to work on my bike, I might do that. Yeah, I feel like in this day and age, that's kind of like putting a sticker on your wheel saying, "Please don't inflate to 200." <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> <laughs> still better off not inflating to 200. So if it, a sticker is required, then that's the that's the yeah. age we live in, isn't it? That's the PSA. But uh, I think yeah, before we wrap it up, we've got a quick bit of news from around the industry so uh, i'm just going to fire through these so fulcrum they have just released the speed 25 plus wheels which are a shallow depth carbon wheel you're looking at just 1270 grams claimed weight for the pair part of the weight savings there in addition to just having a shallow 26 millimeter depth rim is uh, a new lighter weight free hub from fulcrum so i'm sure that'll come to future wheels as well uh, and that lighter weight free hub applies to uh, Shimano style, SRAM style, and uh, Campagnolo's own N3W style free hub. Uh, yeah, but otherwise, this is a 21 millimeter internal width rim with the undrilled rim bed for easy tubeless setup. And you're looking at US $2,955 for a pair or $2,300, uh, uh, sorry, 2300 British pounds. Also new, uh, One Up Mountain Bike Company, they have just released. Uh, version 3 of their very popular dropper seat post. So the new seat post, which retails for 270 US dollars, uh, is lighter, more reliable, and smoother, according to the company. And it's also shorter. So that means, generally speaking, you can fit more dropper travel into your frame uh, for the same uh, amount of exposed seat post. So that's a really good feature to have in a in any dropper post. And the arms race there is, has been... Uh, is continuously fought, and I think uh, Wolf Tooth had slightly outdone one up by a millimeter, so uh, I think uh, uh, they've been one upped again. Uh, and then lastly, Blackheart, they're a, a small boutique bicycle brand out of California. Um, they do sort of 
production frames with with a lot of cool paint. Um, they've now got a gravel AL, so aluminium gravel bike. And yeah, it's two thousand dollars for a frame set or complete bike starting from three thousand two hundred US, and it looks pretty cool. It's uh, that price includes your choice of Cerakote paint with like a hundred or more choices in color. Uh, it comes with an NV fork. Uh, it's got clearance for 47 millimeter tires. It's got a T47 bottom bracket. It's got a UDH dropout so you can run that new SRAM transmission on it. Looks like a solid bike. I've been meaning to get my hands on a Blackheart ever since the brand launched a few years ago. And uh, this, it might be time that I do. So stay tuned. We'll probably... Uh, something from their range called in because they, they seem to be offering pretty good value with with quite cool bikes one other bit of news dave leap components mm. have just released oh, yeah. a 3d printed double arm bar blip mount for well for mounting two axis wireless blips on the right hand side of your flat bar which i thought was yeah. quite a neat solution i've seen james had shared it on an instagram story of theirs and when i clicked on it I was like yeah that looks sweet price between 19 well, basically 20 euro and 32 euro, uh, depending on the exact setup cool. you go for. Um, but yeah, look blips like not included. Solution. Blips not included. Ah, cool. So you kind of make a mountain bike shifter out of two blips. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's neat. All right. Well, there you have it. That's the the world in tech from this week. And Ronan, what's uh, what what do we have in store for you from Tordanda? What what sort of features can we expect to see? Well, uh, right now, I'm just recovering from the members uh, group ride this morning. Um, we're running those throughout the week. Actually, you can don't even have to be a member to join the group ride. So uh, welcome for anyone to join us. 8 a.m. in Adelaide every day from now until the end of the race. Uh, check out the website for more details on that. And apart from that, I have another tech gallery coming and a few other things in the works. And we've obviously got your pro bike uh, articles, the... Bikes of the World Tour, yes. Deep Dives, all sorts. We yes, also have, uh, may well have a podcast or two coming oh, great. For, through the, perhaps a, a special episode, Geek Warning episode, and a special, well not a special, but a, a, another couple of performance process episodes to record while I'm here also. So they'll, they'll be rolling out in the weeks to come. All right. And for those that uh, yeah uh, haven't heard, um, Performance Processes Ronin's podcast where it gets pretty geeky, but uh, that is for our members only. So you can tune in to often small parts of the episodes if you're not a member, but for the full experience, Escape Collective members get the full, uh, how, get access to all of it. How dare you? How dare you? It doesn't get pretty geeky. It gets extremely geeky. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Uh, and speaking of other extremely geeky things, we also have members-only uh, versions of Geek Warning. So, yeah, uh, expect some deeper dives into with various designers and creators and uh, engineers of the cycling world. And, and also, uh, of course, our regular Ask a Mechanic series, which is kept specifically for our members. So, yeah, again, this podcast is made possible by our members. So we try to offer them a little extra for as a thank you. I'm going to wrap it up there, Ron. It's uh, I think we've we've spoken enough about tech. Anyone still listening is is geekier than than both of us combined. So I'm I'm going to call it a day and thank you. It was lovely hanging out with you in Adelaide, and I'm sure we'll catch up in next week. And mm-hmm. yeah, all right. I'm nodding, but that doesn't really work in a podcast. So um, agreed. <laughs> all right, we're clearly fried. All right, Ron, <laughs> have a great one. This has been Geek Warning. We'll see you next week. 